BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Katie Orr. As the summer begins, it's almost inevitable. A slew of articles about how to get your body ready for swimsuit season appear in magazines, newspapers, and social media. Diet culture and a narrow idea of what's considered beautiful is everywhere. And some argue it's been especially harsh for millennial women. And new messages of body positivity and even a pandemic hasn't stopped many from obsessing about their weight. But what toll has the cult of thinness taken on us? And why are we so obsessed with being skinny in the first place? Is it for health reasons or is something deeper driving us? That's next on Forum right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Even amid a global pandemic, weight stayed center stage in people's minds, as many bemoan their lockdown weight gain, commonly called the COVID-15. The obsession with thinness and the pervasive message that being skinny equals wellness has long been a part of American culture. While in some ways society has become more size-inclusive, some argue that the damage to self-image, particularly for millennial women, has been done. We'll talk about body image, diet culture, and what it means to equate health with thinness. Joining me this hour are Anne Helen Peterson, who wrote the recent article, Millennial Vernacular of Fat Phobia, for her newsletter, Culture Study. Sabrina Strings, an associate professor of sociology at the UC Irvine and author of Fearing Black Bodies, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and Virginia Soul Smith journalist and author of Eating Instincts, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and I wanted to start with you just because, honestly, that piece that you wrote resonated with me so much. We're about the same age. I think we might be the same age. I'm an older millennial. Reading this, I felt like, honestly, I was right back in my bedroom in junior high navigating bodysuits and baby tees that were never going to look good on me. It sounds like you you can relate to that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, the best term is elder millennial. I think that <laughs> confers some of our authority. But I, I do think we're at an interesting place. You know, the older millennials and I think younger Gen X occupied this moment in pop culture where fat acceptance um, and even conversations about what fat acceptance would look like, that just was not percolating. And we're also in this moment of what academics call post-feminism, where uh, there was this idea that like we didn't need feminism anymore. Like we had achieved equality somehow. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was unquestioned to a lot of the norms and a lot of the standards that we were confronted with, it was more like, oh, well, this person is making a choice about their body. They're empowered about their body. Instead of thinking about how there were some pretty pernicious standards that were really unachievable for, for most women. 
I know, you know, it's I recall like doing quizzes that helped you, you know, helped you try to focus in on your problem areas, you know, your your butt or your tummy or whatever. And doing a quiz and being like, oh, my gosh, my whole body is a problem area. Yes, I totally. Mean, <laughs> well, and being what told does that do to people? Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Teen, you, like you didn't even know that you had problem areas, maybe. Right. Like this is the mm-hmm. the what magazines and, and the culture that surrounds us does is it constructs a problem that we didn't even know that we had like a problem area. Like I didn't know that my thighs could be a problem area. I just thought they were my legs uh, and then offers solutions oftentimes in the form of things that you should buy in order to fix those problem areas. Right. And you talk about how a lot of the messages in these magazines are so contradictory. I mean, you mentioned one uh, 17 headline from 1993 that said, you are so beautiful, celebrate your heritage, celebrate yourself. But you open up those magazines and again, they have these articles pointing out, you know, places and things about you that you need to fix. So it's it was very like confusing message. Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of ideologies are really contradictory that way. They're, and if you're reading them and internalizing them as a teen, you, you don't know what to do except for, you know, think of those problems and try to fix them. Um, I know that I certainly was very confused and the way that I responded to that confusion was by just trying to, to limit myself in whatever ways possible. And most of those were not healthy. It was things like, oh, I see that like Starburst jelly beans are fat free. That must mean I can eat them instead of lunch, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Snack well cookies, which you also yes. mentioned. Um, I want to bring uh, Virginia Soul Smith into the conversation because, Virginia, you actually worked at Seventeen Magazine uh, early in your career. Talk about uh, your experience there a little bit. Yes, I was in the the belly of the beast, as it were, um, as a both as an intern in college, and then it was my first job out of college. So as a you know baby journalist. Um, It was a really interesting time. So this would have been um, late 90s, early 2000s. um, So very much in these formative years for us elder millennials. Um, And, you know, the fascinating thing about Seventeen and about most women's magazines at that time is that they were staffed by people who would identify as feminists, but who felt like we were trapped in this system that required us to keep putting out this content that was so clearly anti-women. And so because we were beholden to advertisers in the way that we were. And so, you know, as a junior editor, my job was to read the reader mail. And, you know, people often say like, oh, the mail's made up and the letters are written by editors, but they're not. I mean, at 17 at that point, we were getting truckloads of mail every day from teenage girls. And the letters were just heartbreak after heartbreak almost all of them centering around body shame around, I, you know, I don't like my thighs. I don't like this body part, all the problem body parts that you guys are talking about. Um, What do I do? You know, and really scary stuff, you know, stuff that you want an adult in their life to be paying attention to, not that they're writing to some anonymous magazine. And our quote solution was to keep putting out this message of no, no, you will celebrate your best body this year. If you can make it a bikini, a quote, bikini body. Um, Mm -hmm. So we kept, sort of solving their problems by reinforcing their problems over and over. And then maybe every six months or so, we would think like, oh, no, we really have to do a story on eating disorders, which frankly was probably a how-to manual for a lot of kids. Um, And it was because we're all trapped in this same message of fat is bad, fat is the thing to avoid at all costs. And so we will make you feel better if we can avoid fat. But all that does is reinforce that same negative message and give in to the sort of the shame, stigma and bullying around weight. 
We're talking about diet culture and the cult of thinness and the ways in which millennials have metabolized these messages. What messages about thinness and dieting did you take away from the culture? And what concerns do you have about messages being sent to young girls and boys about their bodies and healthy weight? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Sabrina Springs, you have researched the racial origins of fat phobia. What does history tell us about the role race plays in this conversation? Yes, race is actually foundational to the issue, because when we think about bodies in the Western world, I mean, there was a moment that we all recognize where curvaceous and voluptuous physiques were prized. It's the Renaissance. We can go back and take a look at all the paintings from someone like uh, Peter Paul Rubens or Albrecht Dürer. I mean, there are so many examples. And then by the 18th century, what we have is Thomas Gainsborough, very thin, elite, aristocratic white women. And so the intervening factor was race science. And these magazines that we're speaking about right now, 17, YM, they largely focus on white women. How were and how are Black women, women of color portrayed in these magazines, if they are? They're rarely portrayed. And actually, it's really interesting to hear your other guests um, wax... uh, I suppose, nostalgic about these kinds of um, experiences that they had growing up, however fraught they might have been. Because in my experience, as I'm going through these magazines, I didn't really see myself reflected so much. Um, And so I would look for fashion. Every now and then I might see a Black girl and feel a little bit of pride. But for the most part, it seemed like something that was a problem for white society. It didn't really have very much to do with me. Um, It's not as if Black girls don't also have eating disorders or if Black girls in the 1990s didn't also feel the need to diet. But it didn't have the same force of an imperative that I think a lot of white women experience. And that's, again, because of the fact that there's a relationship between thinness and whiteness such that white people often feel like it's their responsibility to be slender. It proves that they have self-control and discipline and are good American citizens. What about diversity of beauty standards today? We talk a lot about body positivity in the past couple of years, but are we actually embracing more body types? Uh, embracing is my maybe a tough word, uh, because in reality, we do have more images of women who are slightly more curvaceous. I mean, you think of someone like Rihanna and absolutely how beautiful she is. And there are many other examples. And there are even more plus size models that are getting um, a greater share of the spotlight. But we have to recognize that these people are not being treated in the same way as traditional ultra svelte models. First of all, there's far fewer jobs for them. And second of all, as I learned from my friend who used to be a plus size model, oftentimes the people that they're hiring are actually people who might be between a size six through a 10, and they might put a little bit of padding on them in certain places to make them appear larger, such that even within the plus size modeling market, there's still a slender bias. And I believe you were talking even about like the Kardashians, how, you know, maybe they are more uh, curvy than we had been traditionally used to, but they're also appropriating looks that, you know, are culturally black and they are not black. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that there's like a a ritual cleansing of the Kardashians. There's always someone coming out to let them know precisely how problematic they are. And sometimes they apologize about it and then they get right back to promoting flat tummy tea. And so they seem to be fairly resilient to critique. 
And it's largely because we expect in the United States for a white women to be atop the aesthetic hierarchy. And so anything that they may need to do to modify their appearance to stay there is deemed acceptable largely, even if it involves cultural appropriation. And it usually does. And and then you have the contradictory message of someone like, say, Adele, who loses a bunch of weight and people laud her for that. But then there are other people saying, oh, but you were so beautiful. Why did you feel you needed to lose it? It's like you cannot win. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think Virginia will be able to speak to this really well. But I think there has been a paucity of language in terms of how do we talk about someone who has lost or gained weight in the public eye? I think most of the time, the best strategy would be to say nothing at all. Uh, but that is something that the gossip press is ill-equipped to do because it is contrary to their, uh, you know, the way that they run their businesses is by talking about everything ceaselessly. And we are absolutely going to get into the interplay of weight and health and wellness. Um, but first, I want to tell our our listeners, we're talking about diet culture, the cult of thinness, and the ways in which millennials have metabolized these messages with Anne Helen Peterson, who recently wrote the article Millennial Vernacular of Fat Phobia for her newsletter, Culture Study. Sabrina Strings, an associate professor of sociology at UC Irvine and author of Fearing Black Bodies, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and Virginia Soul Smith, journalist and author of Eating Instincts, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And we want to know what you think. Is there a memory from growing up that affected your relationship to weight? What messages about thinness and dieting did you take away from the culture? Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're talking about diet culture today with Anne Helen Peterson, Sabrina Strings, and Virginia Soul Smith, who have all done amazing research on body culture, weight loss, how it relates to things like health and wellness. And Virginia, I want to get back to you. You know, there is a message that we've seen grow, you know, for decades that being thin equals being healthy. And you say that that is not the case, that weight loss does not equal good health. Talk a little bit about that. To this. The first is what Sabrina touched on already, which is this baked in bias we have against larger bodies, which is very much, you know, tying body size and race together. That all predates what we are currently experiencing as the quote unquote obesity epidemic. Um, so all of the research that is done in the last 40 years around weight and health and proving, you know, claiming to prove this strong relationship is all done with by people and funded by institutions that have baked in bias against larger bodies. So you have to sort of factor that in when you evaluate how the research has been done, what questions have been asked, what questions haven't been asked, who's been included in the studies, 
how they've been treated in the studies. I mean, just a whole myriad of things. This research is really impacted by weight stigma in so many ways. Then the next layer of it is to say, okay, well, when we look at what we actually see in the data, often what we see is more of a correlation between body size and certain health outcomes. Correlation is not causation. So we don't know that it's this body size itself that's causing the health outcome. The body size may be a completely unrelated factor and the study didn't control for what's really going on. It could be another symptom. And a great example is something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, where weight gain is a common symptom. Not everybody experiences that, but some folks experience that. And it's often then treated through weight loss, but you're just treating one symptom of the condition. You're not treating the condition itself. And then the third piece of this that's really important to emphasize is we don't have a safe and durable way for the vast majority of people to lose weight in the long term. All of the research on dieting shows tremendously high failure rates. So when we tell people your health problem is caused by weight and so the solution is weight loss, we're not giving them a safe or effective treatment. I want to go to a caller now. Um, Nicole in Windsor. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I was uh, calling because I have lived with an eating disorder ever since I was 12 years old, and I'm approaching 36 years old now. Um, and I actually recently just learned that I did have polycystic ovarian syndrome and that uh, by starting this one type of drug, I was able to um, start to lose um, a little bit of weight, but like in, in, the, in the desire to eat all the time and how I never really understood how people growing up didn't feel like they were starving all the time. Like that was my normal feeling. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to touch in and say, I'm really grateful you're talking about um, this all in general, because it's affected my life. This and my entire life, my entire lifetime has revolved around um, not feeling enough and, (laughs) and never feeling full. And you can understand that metaphorically and, Mm. and not, (laughs) Nicole, thank you so much for giving us a call. And and I feel like that speaks to a lot of experiences that millennial women have had. I mean, dieting is not a new message, but what makes it so or what made it so hard for millennials growing up in that time? Hmm. I mean, this is really complicated. I think that some of it, and this is not, you know, exclusive to millennials by any means, because I think every generation has different ideas that are passed down about how women in particular should maintain an ideal figure, whatever that ideal figure is at that moment. You know, my grandmother was told to smoke while she was pregnant to keep her pregnancy weight down. Like that's the sort of thing that we look back on and think is just ridiculous, but I am sure that there will be things looking back on our current moment that we view as similarly ridiculous. And the one that people uh, really echoed back to me that I mentioned in my newsletter is the idea that uh, celery is a calorie negative food. Mm. And I don't know where I first heard this. I'm sure most people can't tell you where they first heard it, but it was something that was in the air was the idea that you should eat a lot of celery because you actually burn calories while you're eating it. Mm. And just that idea that like eating should be a way to like make yourself slim uh, is just, (laughs) it's so, so messed up. Uh, But then there are other things too, like just the idea that you should feel hunger, like that hunger is a normal thing that you should uh, learn to live with. And if you do feel it, you should 
fend it off by drinking water, right? Or by telling yourself, I'm just bored. Instead of thinking about, okay, so what are what is my body telling me in terms of hunger cues? Like what does what does hunger mean to me? What does my body actually need? And it's certainly not fat-free snack wells. Yeah, I remember being on the playground when I was in sixth grade, my friends and I moving our fingers up and down saying, oh, if you do this 10 times, you burn a calorie or something. So we're sitting there like waving our hands around, you know, at 12 years old trying to burn calories. But, um, (laughs) you know, I want to go to Adele in Oakland now. Adele, go ahead. Hi, Adele. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. Um, I was listening, and I had two different things. Hopefully, I can say it really quick. I'm a public speaker, and so I travel around a lot. Uh, And part of that, we have to kind of stay fashionable somewhat. And I'm obviously a man. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is uh, men's fashion when it comes to plus size. It hasn't really come around until probably the last five years. It's kind of like we were given khakis and polo shirts, and that's what we were expected to wear. Um, And it's not until recently that there are companies that are starting to see that there are actually big guys who want to actually look somewhat decent and fashionable and stay trendy. And I know a lot of the focus is on women and weight loss, but I think especially for younger men, I'm about 35, uh, I'm a millennial. And so there's a lot of pressure for us to look a certain way and, um, and all that. And then the other thing I wanted to say is I was with my doctor and I'm a vegan and I'm a plus size guy. I have about a size 48 waist. And even with my doctor, we were sitting down and I have pretty much perfect health, no high cholesterol, no issues. And she uh, told me, she was like, um, wow, you, you uh, have pretty good health for a big guy, but you should try to lose weight. And I said, why should I lose weight? She said, well, you just want to lose weight for the long term. And I thought to myself, well, if I have perfect health and no expectation for bad health with the way that I'm living, why is there pressure even from the medical world for me to lose weight um, as a big guy? So, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about fashion, and I just want to add to the conversation as a man that there is pressure, probably not as much for as there is for women, but there is pressure for men as well to uh, perform in a certain way in the physical body sector, you know? Yeah, thanks so much, Del. And Sabrina, I think that brings up a really interesting point in that you have you have questioned the use of BMI, which is a measurement that your body mass index that in recent years, uh, the health world has really come to see as like a met- a standard for what we should all be. Um, but it's frustrating to a lot of people because, you know, for instance, I would have to be very skinny <laughs> to be in the normal range for me. And it, it's something I'm never going to achieve. Uh, talk a little bit about the problems you see with the BMI. Well, the first thing is that BMI was never intended to be used to measure individual adiposity or an individual's health profile period. It was developed to assess the distribution of weights across the population. And it was developed in the 19th century by a Belgian statistician named Adolf Ketelet. And it was in the 1970s and 80s in the United States where doctors started to say, hmm, we're tired of insurance companies telling us what we should use as our weight guidelines. We want to have our own tool that we control. And sure, it's arbitrary, So they acknowledge it was arbitrary in their own writings, but it's better than someone else giving us these guidelines. And so they went about creating entirely artificial BMI classification um, categories in which people were placed as either underweight, which is rare, um, so-called normal weight, overweight, and obese. And there are a couple of categories after obese that are actually um, very uh, dehumanizing in their language. Mm 
Um, and so we can understand why your caller, Dell, um, is having this particular experience. It's like you go in, you're completely healthy, but doctors are relying on a reference range that is in many instances meaningless to tell you what you should weigh because you should be healthy. It's like, but I was healthy when I came in. And so now I feel like I'm in some kind of trap <laughs> because I can't quite understand what I need to do to maintain my health when I'm already healthy. So it's definitely um, a system of devolution <laughs> in which people who are just fine are being stigmatized and can lead to worse health outcomes as a result of it. Sabrina, why do you think weight has been something that doctors and, and health practitioners, you know, latch on to so, so not to use it heavily, um, mm. but is it because it's visible? They can see it? It's partially because um, we've been living for nearly a century, if, actually, if not longer, with the idea that there's something wrong with being fat. And so it's difficult for people to let go of these inherited ideas from individuals we considered experts, especially because there isn't anything to, quote unquote, replace it. So when I talk about BMI, people often say things like, OK, well, if not BMI, then what? It's like, well, we can just let go of that and leave it alone altogether. But they want to have something else that we must use to discipline fat people. Surely we can't let people just be any weight. No, we have to tell them what weight they should be. And so because we've been living with this for so long, it's like a confirmation bias. We don't know how not to believe in it, especially in the absence of something to replace it. I have a, a quote from Joe. She writes uh, a comment, I should say. It's about more than fat shaming. As long as women feel they have to injure their feet and backs by squeezing into stiletto heels to feel attractive, feminism has failed. Uh, Tex writes, I believe there is also an ageist quality to fat phobia. Since being slim is often the domain of the young, weight is seen as a degradation of time. Uh also, uh, Laura Lee is on the phone now from San Rafael. Uh, Laura Lee, go ahead. Hi. Thank you so much for this program. It is uh, touching my heart so much. So um, we have a nonprofit called beyondhunger.org. We've been in San Rafael since 1988, working with men and women and teenagers with eating disorders and severe body hatred. What I wanted to talk about is the arm of our program, which is our peer ed program, where I teach young women how to go into schools and talk about this issue peer to peer. I can stand up in front of a classroom of teenagers, blah, 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 and it doesn't register. But when I have a teenager talking to the other teenagers, talking about how eating disorders, disordered eating, body hatred has affected their life and how they got over it, it is phenomenal, the change. And I uh, just want to put that out there that that is available in the Bay Area. We go all over. Of course, with COVID, we were doing everything on Zoom, but we do, it is a program that we have. It's available. It's a I'm a nonprofit, so I know schools don't have any money, and I raise money to get this done. So I also have a book called Over It for Teenage Girls, and it is about letting go of the whole insane body hatred that is taught to young women and now young men at a very young age, that their bodies are not okay, they can't trust them, they can't trust their hunger, they can't trust their emotional selves. 
and it is a horrible thing we continue to do to our youth in this culture. Laura Lee, uh, what what changes are you seeing? It, it sounds like you don't feel like this is getting better at all. Oh, no. Oh, no. We never, Carol Normandy and I, I'm Laura Lee Roar, Carol Norman, we started Young Hunger in 88. We never saw the Internet coming. We never saw Photoshop coming. We never saw social media coming. We never... We thought it would be over because people would get the idea that it wasn't good to continue to do this body hatred, this emotional stuff that the corporations, you know, hire advertising agencies to make us feel bad about ourselves so we'll buy their products. We never saw that it would be, an, you know, the, the amount that has happened now through social media, the Internet, um, we're still doing it in, on TV Lee, and in movies. Yeah. Horrible. Thank you so much for your comments. I really appreciate that. Um, Virginia, you know, just listening to that, and we've been talking a lot about millennial uh, women here today, but how are younger generations handling these messages? What's different for younger generations is, you know, when when Anne and I are talking about, you know, reading 17 as teenagers and that whole experience, the magazine showed up once a month in your mailbox. We, you know, certainly I wallpapered my room with pictures from these magazines. You know, we did really obsess over them and take them in, but it still was somewhat of a controlled quantity because, you know, it was only this monthly magazine um, or, you know, three or four monthly magazines. Now with social media, it is a fire hose of images. It is constant. It is in their phones, on their screens all day long. There is really little separation. And so, you know, a big thing I talk about with teenagers and when I talk to parents about these issues is talking about the importance of we're not going to get rid of social media. That's not realistic. But teaching kids how to curate their feeds, how to find accounts that are doing more body positive content, um, you know, shifting the messages, getting away from the diet messages that are all over Instagram in particular um, and TikTok, getting away from the what I eat in a day stuff, you know, that that onslaught is really difficult for kids to manage. And certainly in this past year, when so many of them have been so isolated, social media has been this lifeline in many ways, but also it is posing, you know, all this added exposure. And and even though the the trend these days is toward, you know, quote unquote, body positivity, you know, that is confusing as well, because it feels like I'm just supposed to tune out the last, you know, 40 years of messages that I've gotten about how to fix my body and why my body isn't great enough. And now just, you know, accept my body for what it is. And then if I can't do that, then there's something else wrong with me. I mean, so talk a little bit about body positivity. I mean, I guess it's good on one hand, but it is a confusing message, too. I think sometimes it sets people up to feel like they're failing at yet another thing, like they're failing at being positive about their bodies. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, no matter what, you know, and this is something that I know uh, Virginia talks about a little bit, like, you know, my mom tried really, really hard to model body positivity for me and to sh- shelter me from a lot of the the more nefarious messages about, about body and, and diet culture and that sort of thing. And they still got in, right? Like no matter what you do as a parent, you cannot ultimately control all of the messages that, that your kids are, are receiving and seeking out. 
And that's where I struggle to, to really find solutions or to give advice even to be like, there's only so much that you as a parent can do. There's only so much that you can put in the way of the, the fire hose of ideology that is um, coming towards young women and young men, young people. But at the same time, you know, Virginia referenced the fact that 17 came once a month. It's, it felt very authoritative to me as a young white woman. Like I saw those representations and they mirrored to me what I thought I should be aspiring to. And I didn't have a lot of different representations. And I do think one positive thing about the multiplicity of representations that are available for young women is there are just different models of different ways to be. And I don't mean model as in like fashion model. I mean, different things that you can look at and say, I see myself there. I see the way that I want to be, I see ways of occupying space in the world that are admirable and you know, aspirational to me. We're talking about diet culture and body image and the ways in which millennials have metabolized these messages with Virginia Soul Smith, journalist and author of The Eating Instinct, Food, Culture, Body Image and Guilt in America. Sabrina Strings, associate professor of sociology at UC Irvine and author of Fearing Black Bodies, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And Helen Ann Peterson, a cultural critic. If you have a question about, you know, or a message about what thinness and dieting did to you when you were growing up, what messages you took away from it, what concerns you have about the messages being sent to young girls and boys about their bodies, give us a call, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about diet culture today and body image and way that ways that millennials and others have metabolized these messages. Um, uh, Louise writes, when I lost 30 pounds slowly over the course of the year through portion control exercise, my LDL rate went down to the normal range and triglyceride rates also went down. Could you please ask your guests to speak to the real benefits of weight loss? Um, Sabrina, can you can you respond to that? I mean, it seems like there probably is some benefit to to losing weight. Well, there are studies that show that for people who decide to lose weight, especially if they have to lose a tremendous amount of weight or elect to lose a tremendous amount of weight, they might find that their health profile improves. But unfortunately, for many people who lose weight, they engage in what's known as weight cycling. Um, As other guests have already pointed out, diets don't work. So the vast majority of people who lose weight will gain it back. So even if your health profile appears to improve for a brief period of time, you will ultimately gain that weight back overwhelmingly. And it's this weight cycling, this weight um, shifting from being uh, a low weight to a higher weight and back and forth. This is actually extremely damaging to the organs. It actually leads to worse health outcomes than if individuals had simply remained fat. So between the problem of weight cycling and the problem of many fat people already being in completely fine health, we find that overwhelmingly 
telling people to lose weight is not a winning game and that it causes more harm than good. Can I jump uh, in with yeah. one other? Yeah, please. please. Yeah. Please. So, and I mean, absolutely what Sabrina said. And then the third piece of it is when someone's saying I changed X, Y, and Z behaviors and I lost weight and my health improved, you don't actually know that it was the weight loss that it caused your LDL to drop versus the behaviors changing. You know, maybe you're eating more vegetables than you did before, and that can improve your health, whether or not your body size changes. And this is something that often gets lost when we focus so specifically on weight and health. It's really important to say, you know, actually a lot of the research is centering on behaviors, improving health, even if your weight does not change, which is a much more positive message for people who, you know, would otherwise give up on any kind of of lifestyle change. They stop exercising, they stop eating vegetables if the number on the scale is not moving. I mean, to know that you can really improve your health right where you are, if that's something that's important to you and if you and your doctor decide it's necessary. Um, and again, there's a lot of access issues too here. Not everyone can afford vegetables and gym memberships and these things, and we need to focus on that. But yeah, to think about, is it really the weight lost that achieved this benefit or is it the lifestyle changes? Yeah, and we're getting a lot of questions along the lines uh, that Amanda wrote. She asked, how uh, uh, how can we inspire health in women without body image issues? Can we create a culture of delicious homemade real foods to celebrate and enjoy? Can the body image culture be shifted to a healthy foods culture? Sabrina, what do you think about that? Why are we so obsessed with thinness versus health? <laughs> I like the way you put that thinness versus health, um, because oftentimes they are at odds. Um, I'll just give a quick, quick anecdote, which is that I work with a woman who used to be a flight attendant. And she explained to me that, you know, during the time period in which she was a flight attendant, you had to be slender to have this job. And so she would smoke in order to keep her job <laughs> as a mm -hmm. flight attendant. Right. And so we know that being thin is not always um, evidence of good health. And in her case, for example, it was evidence of poor health. And so if we want to shift our focus, we have to change our values. Right now, we think that there is some kind of relationship between weight and health, but that's not necessarily the case. And instead, we want to think about what kinds of things make us feel good, what kinds of things make us happy. And we can see how if we have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, if we have access to lean proteins and you know, dairy, if we like eating that, these are the kinds of things that will allow people to feel good in their bodies and probably also feel good eating them if we can prepare them well and you know, have these delicious meals. Um, but that's not the only driving force here. Part of the driving force is the visual culture that your other guests were mentioning. Um, I think Virginia did a great job of explaining that. I mean, there are different, there are so many different places uh, on the internet where people can find very harmful images that reinforce a negative body image culture. At the same time, there are also plenty of sites on the internet, if we want to seek them out, that are about body positivity, that are about fat acceptance, that are even about fat liberation, but we have to be willing to look for those things. So at the end, it calls for us to have a shift in our values. And the other thing I wanna mention is that one of your callers stated that feminism failed us. This is incorrect. Feminism is not finished. Even though people wanna toss around the word post-feminism, which I understand, we are not at that moment. We are still in the moment in which women are fighting for equality, in which all genders are fighting for equality. And even though it may not seem like it, I'm going back again to the caller Dell because I think his comments were very much resonant. 
when we look at the ways in which bodies are being shamed, we have to recognize that the male gaze is at the root of that, even when it comes to men's bodies being shamed, because mm-hmm. men are the ones who are driving these industries. I want to get to a caller now. Cindy and Alameda, go ahead. Hi, I'm really appreciating this discussion, and I 100% agree with the politics around the discussion, 100% agree with the idea of body positivity and the pitfalls of dieting and fat shaming um, is a terrible thing. I do want to add something to the discussion, though, that I think there should be room in this discussion in a very real way. Um, When you talk about dieting and you talk about perhaps focusing as a process of dieting or just changing habits that where the end goal perhaps may be focused on good health as opposed to the image of being thin, that I think is a really good thing because the very important component of that, a very real one, perhaps one in the forefront, is that the idea of extra weight on your body, especially as you grow old, has a very negative effect on the musculoskeletal system. The muscles and bones have a really hard time adapting to the extra weight. And over time, there's all kinds of problems, issues with mobility, et cetera, that come into play as you grow old with extra weight, particularly lots of extra weight. And so, I, you know, I, although I agree with the idea of the body positivity and the fat shaming is terrible, I do really want to stress since I work in rehab that as a physical therapist, that one does need to be aware of the body and the effect of extra weight on the muscles and bones. So I want to just say that. Thank you so much. Um, let's uh, head to an, another caller now. Uh, Elizabeth, why don't you go ahead? Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Um, I was just calling because I wanted to um, share an experience I had because I think this might be helpful to others, I hope. Um, I had a, a, a bout with anorexia when I starting around um, age 13. And that lasted several years. Um, and then uh, all of a sudden, I threw up one night unprovoked. And that sort of spiraled into me being unable to keep any food down at all. And it wasn't a forced purging. It was just my digestive system couldn't keep anything down. And I'm 34 years old now. And I had tried various diets and trying to figure out what I'm allergic to, what I'm sensitive to. Um, And it wasn't until about three years ago when I went into the Kaiser Eating Disorder Clinic um, that they were able to diagnose me with something called gastroparesis. Um, So essentially what happens is when you struggle with something like anorexia, your digestive muscles shut down and they're not being used in the right way. And so you can't actually keep food down. And so you actually have to retrain your stomach, go through a physical therapy for your stomach to be able to hold food down again. And I've noticed this, I'm a teacher, and I've noticed um, some students of mine commenting about, oh, I'm allergic to this, I can't keep this down, yada, yada. And I think it's more common than than we realize. Thank you so much for that call, Elizabeth. And, you know, I think, uh, Virginia, that Elizabeth brings up a really good point. I mean, so I have two little girls. I mean, they're little, but I do not want them to have body image issues. Um, and, it, it, you know, as a parent, it's it's scary for me to hear things, uh, you know, comments like Elizabeth's. And then I know Anne was speaking earlier, too, about how it it's almost like no matter what you do, the diet culture seeps in. So, 
You know, Virginia, how can we break this cycle with our kids? I think the best thing parents can do is really start early with having these conversations. Often we want to think like, oh, our kids are too little. You know, my five-year-old's too little to worry about her body size or, you know, this won't be something we deal with till they're teenagers. All the research shows that between ages three and five, kids are picking up on the fat is bad message. You know, early elementary school is when topics like dieting come up, when weight bullying starts. So you really can't start this too soon. And, you know, there's a couple of things that parents can communicate early and often, which is all bodies are valuable, but your value is not your body. Um, also, you know, really explaining what is fat phobia or anti-fat bias, explain that this is a world that is unfair to people in bigger bodies and that we can help prevent that the same way, you know, we know that parents need to talk to kids about racism and sexism and talking about equality. So, you know, we have those conversations early and often, and also be really clear. This is a house that doesn't diet. This is a house that doesn't body shame. We don't want anyone to make their bodies smaller. We want you to take up space. I'm making this all sound super simple. Like those are like three easy things you can just say every day. It's not. And the hardest part about it is that as parents, we have to do our own work on these issues. We have to recognize our internalized biases. We have to recognize, you know, our own dieting history, you know, reckon with that and, you know, start to find our own way. But the good news is there's some nice research that shows that like you don't have to have this all worked out for yourself, which is good because literally zero people do, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, just starting to change the words you use with your kids has a big impact. Kids struggle the most when they hear parents demonizing their own bodies and food choices or demonizing the child's body and food choices. So if you can, you know, really avoid that, you can set kids up to navigate these things better. Yeah, it's just it's you you don't know if you should, you know, talk about the body at all, but you don't want to ignore your body because obviously it's a huge part of your <laughs> thing. No, so you, you, you need to talk about it. You need to talk, you know, and you know, like I'm in a small fat body and I say that to my kids, I'm in a small fat body and that's great. You know, um, you talk about it openly. You use the word fat in a neutral and positive way. You don't make it an insult. You let people, you let your kids know that not everybody wants their bodies to be talked about. You know, you teach consent too. you don't just walk up to other mm -hmm. people and comment mm -hmm. on their bodies because you don't know what that's going to do. But kids can understand that, you know, I have a three and a seven year old and, you know, so obviously I'm not all the way to dealing with the stuff in the teenagers, but I've been amazed at sort of how matter of fact they are about understanding that all foods are good, that all bodies are good. Like this just seems obvious to them um, in a way that, you know, for us as adults coming off our 40 years of diet culture, it's much harder. And the other thing is, you know, it's easy to freak out and think like, oh God, I'm going to screw them up with this. And the truth is we're not trying to keep them in a bubble away from diet culture. That's impossible. We're trying to give them the tools to navigate it. So any opportunity where you feel like you said the wrong thing is an opportunity to get in and have a better conversation about this and do more learning. Kat writes, it's not just millennials. My daughter, when my daughter was seven, she came home from school and said that her thighs were fat. We've had many conversations for her to feel good about herself, but it's a very steep hill to battle. Uh, I, I feel you, Kat. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to go now to, yeah, absolutely. I want to go now to George in Oakland. Go ahead. Hi, um, I have a I have a comment and a, and a and a small question. One, I wanted to to thank uh, the the panel for the current um, discussion. Some of the really interesting points, um, and then I just want to highlight a, an issue that I that I heard. And one is um, 
Chris Whitty, who's a, who's a, I forget exactly his title, I think General Surgeon of Great Britain or United Kingdom, you know, he talks about, he has lectures on COVID and, um, and body weight and how it's related to, uh, uh, to the uh, fatal outcome of that disease. You know, you had another caller coming, calling in ahead of me who talked about issues with joints. So I, I think we can't completely ignore the fact, and I, I can't ignore the fact that, uh, you know, extra weight has impact on health. Right. And I also agree with the panel that, you know, the, uh, the fashion beauty industry are you know, spewing garbage. I would say the same thing about most of the, the food industry. You know, you go anywhere and most of the food has a ton of sugar in it that you probably shouldn't be consuming. But there is a science element to it. There's statistics. You know, you could look at the levels of obesity in the United States increasing from the 70s to where we are right now. And if we just completely ignore that and we say, no, that's fine. And again, I, I have a I have a daughter, and one of the you know just the latest comments were like I super sensitive to all that. I don't want her to feel bad about her body, but there is a health component to it. There's statistical health, diabetes, arthritis, you know, just the latest COVID. All of that is also super important. So I guess my question to the panel is, you know, how can we have this balance? Because there is, how, you know, how we feel about it, but there's also uh, how we deal with it and how, what impact it has long-term on our health. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, George. Uh, Sabrina, do you want to respond to that? Yes. And I guess the main thing that I want to communicate is that when we're talking about health outcomes, even if we are talking about individuals who are labeled as fat, all of these studies that you are mentioning, all of the statistics that you're calling upon are correlational. That is, they're showing a relationship between one's weight and their health outcome. These studies are not causal. None of the studies that you have ever seen have established a single causal relationship between body mass index and health outcomes. And actually what's going on are more of these upstream factors that we have been talking about. Issues like lack of access to healthy fruits and vegetables, lack of clean drinking water as a result of maybe environmental racism, lack of a place to walk around, such that, and I believe again that it was Virginia who was mentioning this, when we're talking about the health improvements that are possible with weight loss, they're often the health improvements that are possible with adopting healthier practices. And so if people have access to these practices, if they're willing to adopt them, they will see an improvement in their overall health. And they might also see a decrease in weight as a consequence, but they may not because not everyone needs to lose weight to be healthy, as we've learned. But again, even if they do lose weight, that might be a consequence, a symptom of their changing their lifestyle. And so again, rather than focusing on weight because it stigmatizes people, we can focus on ways that we can help people to lead healthier, happier lives. And I think, Virginia, you know, just to wrap up this hour, of course, more people are heading back to the office as, as you know, COVID subsides and we get back to, you know, normal. And we're hearing more and more about fitting back into our regular clothes. And you actually wrote that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be worried about that so much. Maybe that should not be our first priority after a year of isolation <laughs> and, and so much worse. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll speak quickly, too, because I've reported quite a bit on the COVID weight relationship that that caller mentioned. Um, and, you know, it's what Sabrina said. It's correlations. It's not causations. And where we do see potential causal relationships between weight and poor health outcomes 
very often it's the role of weight stigma causing those poor health outcomes. It's the fact that a person in a large body, when they go into a medical setting, is going to receive worse care. They're going to be judged. There's going to be assumptions made about their body and their lifestyle choices. And all of that compromises the health care that they've received. And I did a, um, a long reporting project on fat people with COVID and the experiences, the microaggressions they experienced in hospital settings um, were really staggering. As for going back to work in whatever body size we're in now, we have to recognize that body changes are a fact of life and they're certainly a fact of the sort of experiences we've all gone through in the last year. And what we should be prioritizing is our mental health and our emotional well-being and let our body size sort of end up where it ends up because that's, you know, what we really need to do is heal. We've been talking about diet culture with Anne Helen Peterson, Sabrina Strings, and Virginia Soul Smith. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Priya Clemens in Fermina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.